This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Well, while Michigan Talk Network head honcho Steve Gruber has been busy interviewing President Donald Trump in the White House this week, things are a little bit more mundane here in the state capitol. For instance, the Senate Majority Leader this week, Mike Shirky, who's had a really good run, I'd say, so far this year as the head of his caucus, the Republicans in the Senate, where they're in the majority. But maybe he ought to be careful about what he says talking to various groups down in his Senate district. This week he spoke to Hillsdale College Republicans, and at one point he said that legislative Democrats and Governor Gretchen Whitmer were on the, quote, batch crazy spectrum, unquote. Now, that didn't go over too well in the state capitol. Only one person I can think of stood up for him, and that was State Representative Bo LaFave of Iron Mountain. But LaFave was undercut by none other than Mike Shirky, who apologized profusely to the legislative Democrats and to Governor Whitmer for his remarks, saying they were uncalled for and intemperate, and he never should have said what he said, and he got carried away. So I'd say the Senate Majority Leader has got to be a little careful going forward how he describes what's going on in the state capitol when talking to anybody. Item number two, petitioners have turned in petitions with the requisite number of signatures, over 12,000 to recall State Representative Larry Inman up in Traverse City if those signatures are validated under Michigan's recall law, Inman has to make a decision. Does he want to stand for recall election against a Democratic nominee, which I think everybody believes at this point would be fatal for his chances, or does he step aside and say, I'm not going to do it, and the Republicans cannot nominate somebody to take his place to run against a Democrat in a special election that would determine who fills out the remainder of Inman's term. Item number three, there was a lawsuit filed in federal district court in western Michigan this week. Somewhat surprisingly, nobody saw this coming on term limits. And this one has a slightly different twist. It was filed by eight former state legislators, four Republicans and four Democrats, very bipartisan, saying they have been unfairly terminated in terms of ever being able to run for the legislature again. They can't, according to the term limits law that Michigan has in place. At least they can't for places in the chamber that they departed from when their terms were up, and they made the argument, somewhat strangely to me anyway, that even though they think the language in Michigan's Constitution is unconstitutional infringement of the First and Fourteenth 
amendments to the U.S. Constitution, that's freedom of association and freedom of expression, they think, these eight plaintiffs, that there's some merit to term limits, but Michigan's are too extreme. And that three two-year terms for the state house and two four-year terms for the state Senate is just too draconian, too short, too brief, too tough. Uh, tougher, in fact, than any other state in the country. Well, I think everybody agrees with that argument, but it seems to me if you're going to ask a federal judge to rule that Michigan's term limits statute, which is part of Michigan's state constitution, is unconstitutional, you can't hedge your bet by saying, well, we think maybe the intent of term limits was not all bad, but we just think it goes too far. So judge, and the judge will be Janet Neff, who is a district judge at the federal level in western Michigan, to write a new term limits law or to compel somebody, uh, maybe the legislature, maybe the voters again, to come up with new language on term limits. Uh, a little bit strange. I'm going to go to item number four, and this is a little bit different. It has nothing to do with anything really going on in the state capitol right now, but it is a look at what has gone on in the state capitol over the past half century. And that is the Michigan Political History Society and its website, which I think is overlooked by a lot of the political public. All you have to do is go online, Google Michigan Political History Society, and click on Oral History, and you will find interviews with 38 different eminent politicians over the past half century. And I'll just go down the list as quickly as I can. I may not even get to the end of it by the end of the segment, but... There's some incredible interviews here, uh, some of them just under an hour long, others as long as two hours. But I would say they average around an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half. Uh, we can look at Dennis W. Archer, uh, Detroit mayor and former justice of the Supreme Court. Glenn Allen, uh, who was a court of appeals judge and a prominent official in the uh, Romney and Milliken administrations back in the day. Governor Jim Blanchard and then Irving Bluestone, a top official in the United Auto Workers Union. Then Dennis Cawthorn, who was a House Republican leader back in the 1970s and has been a prominent lobbyist lawyer in Lansing ever since. Uh, Francis J. Coombs, who was the head of the Michigan Catholic Conference for years and co-founder of a very prominent lobbying firm in Lansing, Public Affairs Associates, uh, Bobby Krim, former House Speaker, Bob Danhoff, who was Chief Judge of the Michigan Court of Appeals and legal counsel to former Governor George Romney, the longest-serving congressman in the history of the United States, John Dingell. You can See and hear an interview with John Dingle on his career. Tom Downs, who was a vice president of the Michigan Constitutional Convention, a prominent election attorney in Lansing for years. 
Peter B. Fletcher, a very colorful Republican National Committeeman and trustee of Michigan State University at one point, uh, Douglas Fraser, president of the United Auto Workers, Roman Gribbs, a former mayor of Detroit, and a judge on the State Court of Appeals, Bob Griffin, former U.S. Senator, Adelaide Hart, who was Democratic vice chairman, or I should say chairperson, chairwoman of the Democratic Party, an hour-and-a-half interview. Former House Speaker Paul Hilligans, Mildred Jeffrey, a prominent activist in the Democratic Party 30 to 40 years ago. Former Attorney General Frank J. Kelly, Attorney Bob LeBrant, an election and campaign finance specialist, attorney in Lansing. Carl Levin, U.S. Senator, record-holding U.S. Senator from Michigan. Lawrence B. Lindemer, a former regent of the University of Michigan. Conrad L. Mallett, a former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I could go on. Uh, There's Bill Milliken. There is Dan Musser of the Grand Hotel. There's former Speaker Gary Owen. There's Brooks Patterson. There's former Republican Party Chairman, Chairperson Ellie Peterson. There's George Romney himself, Bob Traxler, Joe Schwartz, Bob Vanderlaan, Bob Waldron, Morley Winograd. It's all there. Michigan Political History Society. Go to it online and listen to these incredible interviews over the last 25 years. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Senator Rosemary Bayer. She is a Democrat from Beverly Hills in Oakland County. She represents the 12th Senate District, if I'm not mistaken. I think she represents... uh, the cities of Auburn Hills, Pontiac, Kego Harbor, Sylvan Lake, and seven townships in the village of Clarkson. Is that correct, Senator Bayer? <laughs> yes, there's a lot of townships, but also Beverly Hills, Bingham Farms, and Franklin. Yeah, you really got uh, some uh, major territory down there in Oakland County. Uh, well, it's been great. I lived up in those northern townships for 25 years before moving to Beverly Hills, so uh, it's yeah. all home to me. Yeah, you got it covered. Uh, well, look, I want to talk about something completely different, but, you know, it has an important environmental connotation, we could say, and that, and that is uh, the state insect. Now, Michigan, believe it or not, I, I cannot believe this, is one of only two states the other one is Iowa that does not have a state insect. <laughs> it's almost I, tragic. Isn't I, it? That is tragic. <laughs> uh, you know, in in uh, Michigan, we've got like twelve symbols. They might be called. Uh, we've got a state flower, a state bird, a state tree, a state stone, a state gem, a state fish, a state reptile, a state soil, a state game animal, a state wildflower, a state fossil we've even got a state symbol of clean water if you can believe that which is the lotus blossom but we do not have a state insect 
Now, uh, you uh, want to rectify that situation. I want you to explain what you are doing. Well, um, yes, and you know, it's it's uh, it was something that was brought to us by a whole bunch of second graders uh, calling us from within the district to say, "Hey, we should have a state insect, and that state insect should be the monarch butterfly." Aha. Uh-huh. Well, this uh, school, is it what, uh, Bloomfield Township, West Bloomfield? What is it? Uh, it's West Bloomfield. The West- school is in West Bloomfield. The kids that called us actually were uh, on this side of the township boundary in Bloomfield Township. So, But it's all, all the same to us. It's all for Michigan, and uh, our, our school districts don't align directly with our uh, voting districts. Okay, well, how did they come up with the monarch butterfly? Did they explain that, or did they just say, this is it, uh, monarch butterfly or nothing? Uh, well, you know what? I think they came up with it because they were working in environmental science, and so they started looking at the problems that we're having with pollination and why are we losing our pollinators and what are the challenges with that. And once you start looking at the pollinators and what's happening, you can't help but miss, you can't help but really love looking at the monarch, right? It's the most beautiful butterfly, and it's it's in dire circumstances. It's losing its habitat. So they got involved with what to do about that to try to rescue the monarch butterfly. And so they're all familiar with milkweed pods and how important that is to monarchs, and they plant them. They, they take seeds and deliver and convince people to plant them in their yards. And so it's, it really was, a, I think, more of an environmental project. And then, of course, to come to the legislature and say, hey, if the monarch butterfly was our state insect, that would bring everyone's attention to how important they are to our ecosystem and how everyone can help uh, rescue them. Yeah, when you get right down to it, I mean, they may be second graders, but it looks like they've hit the sweet spot in picking the monarch butterfly. I mean, a lot of people in Michigan would probably agree if we're going to have a state insect, this looks like maybe the most reasonable choice of all, right? Sure. Why not pick something that is both useful and beautiful? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, and you know, when you're faced with this, we went to the school and there were five classrooms of second graders sitting there in this room that was you know, covered with butterflies, of course, and uh, they're just just so cute, as cute as cute can be, and they wrote a song about the monarch, and they all sang the song. I mean, it was just irresistible. That's fantastic. Well, so now, what exactly are you doing? Have you introduced a bill? What's going on there? Yes, we did introduce a bill. We are, uh, we actually worked hand-in-hand with uh, the state representative side, Brenda Carter, Representative Brenda Carter, who also represents the same area there with West Bloomfield Schools, and she's um, located in Pontiac. Um, so our di- our territory overlaps in the middle part of my district. But I introduced on the Senate side Senate Bill number 581, and it's really simple. And it says the monarch butterfly becomes designated as our state's official insect. Have you gotten any indication from the committee chairperson that this is going to be taken up? Uh, has there been any talk about it in the Senate, or did you just get it in and they're off hunting deer somewhere? <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been very long. We haven't had a lot of time to uh, to advocate for it, but we will. Um, waiting for everyone to come back from the holiday, you know, break here, and then uh, um, you know, back to work for all of us. So one of my jobs is to go to the committee and talk to the folks and say, hey, this is really important for us, and. Uh, 
we need a we need a state insect anyway. So let's pick this one that's that's useful and beautiful. As I understand it, there are seven other states that have the monarch butterfly as their state insect. Is that a plus or a minus in terms of getting? the Michigan legislature to adopt the monarch butterfly. Like it, it's not <laughs> exactly unique. Question. Yeah. It's not exactly unique. Uh, and it's kind of widespread. I mean, h- how prevalent is the monarch butterfly in Michigan compared to other States? Have you done any research on any of that? Well, you know, it travels, right? I mean, one of the beautiful things about the monarch is that it's a migrating insect, which by the way, is kind of like people who live in Michigan, to be honest. We go south for the winter, right? Right. There's a huge population who goes south for the winter, Snowbird. just like the monarchs do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that makes sense. So going through other states on its path down to the warm weather for the winter, to me that just shows its strength, right? It does it does good in multiple states, of, you know, as it travels. This is this can only be good for everybody. It makes it even more uh, obviously the right choice for us. Yeah, uh, the. Um discussion about monarch butterfly has that given rise to consideration of any other insects have you heard from anybody i mean i've seen a couple of articles saying well if you're going to pick an insect we all love monarch butterflies but let's look at one that let's say is more particular to michigan like the carner blue butterfly which frankly i'm not sure i've ever even heard of but apparently it is centered in Western Michigan, uh, a couple of other states, but I'm not sure any state has the Carner Blue butterfly as a state insect. What about that? What about other possibilities? <laughs> well, I, I, that's I, you know, it, it's great. I think it's great that people are interested in, in doing an, an insect. So that's a good thing. I, you know, the, one of the other benefits of the monarch, aside from the fact that it is one of the major pollinators in a state where one of our biggest industries requires pollination, right? I mean, the monarch moves, and that's what pollination requires movement. So I've never seen that blue butterfly either, so that's a clue already. That means all the farms on my side of the state won't be benefited by that. I mean, not that we're, you know, heavily competing against another butterfly, but the monarch is actually really beneficial to us aside from being beautiful, and and that's an important piece. The other one that people are talking about is dragonflies, which we also love. You know, we're all everybody in Michigan is probably lives near a body of water and knows people with boats if they don't have their own. And we've all seen them, and they are beautiful, but they don't pollinate. Right. Well, listen, we could go on talking about this for a long time. I wish we had more time, but I want to thank you very much, Senator Rosemary Bayer, Democrat of Beverly Hills. She's taking the ball and running with it in the legislature (laughs) to make the monarch butterfly the state insect. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we're still on the subject of the state insect. We just talked to Senator Rosemary Bayer about her bill to make the monarch butterfly the state insect. Michigan is one of only two states, the other one being Iowa, that does not have a state insect. We've got 12 symbols in Michigan. You can look into the Michigan Manual, which is the Bible of state government, and you'll see what those 12 symbols are, I'll just tell you, uh, for instance, we have a state flower, which is the apple blossom. We have a state bird, which is the robin. We have a state tree, which is the white pine. 
We have a state stone, which is the Petoskey Stone. We have a state gem, which is chlorastrolite, which a lot of people are probably unaware of. It's also called greenstone. That's better able to get your arms around. We have a state fish, which is the brook trout. We have, believe it or not, a state soil, which is the Kalkaska Soil Series, it's called. We have a state reptile, which is the painted turtle. We have a state game mammal, which is the white-tailed deer. We have a state wildflower, which is the dwarf iris. We have a state fossil, which is the mastodon. We even have a state symbol of clean water, which is the lotus blossom. But we do not have a state insect. So a number of second graders in West Bloomfield Township in Oakland County uh, came up with the idea of making the monarch butterfly the state insect, and their state senator, Rosemary Bayer, became aware of it. She's introduced a bill that would, if it passes the legislature, signed into law by the governor, become law, and the 13th state symbol would become the state insect. It would be the monarch butterfly. And that has provoked um, a lot of interest and controversy, which was brought to light by Indri Moladar, who is a reporter for Great Lakes Echo and for the Capital News Service. She wrote a very interesting article that appeared in several different publications. Um in which she pointed out not only that we're one of only two states without a state insect, but there is some debate about whether the monarch butterfly, beautiful as it is and threatened as it is, and that might be another good reason for making it the state insect to help uh, underscore efforts to make sure it survives because it's really uh, been decimated in raw numbers over the past decade. Uh, But it is also claimed, the monarch butterfly, by seven other states. So some insect experts are lobbying for candidates more unique to Michigan. Uh, For instance, the mayfly, or the carner blue butterfly, or, now get ready for this one, Hungerford's crawling water beetle. Now, that may be a very interesting insect, but I'm not sure it has the ring to it that we'd want to claim as a state for our insect. Another one is dragonfly, and here's one that would really be controversial. Emerald ash borer. Well, that's a very destructive insect, and I can't believe that could ever be considered. But The point is, uh, this debate has been taken up, and uh, James Dunn, who's a Grand Valley State University entomologist, said his favorite really would be the Carner Blue Butterfly. He thinks it would be perfect. Why is that? Because, and I'm quoting here from him, this butterfly is found mostly in the Midwest and in West Michigan, and is federally endangered. It's very beautiful, and it needs help in order to survive more so than the monarch, he said. 
Another option is the Hungerford's crawling water beetle. It's also a federally endangered species. It's unique to Michigan. It lives on the bottom of a few rivers in the northern part of the state. Uh, He says, and I'm quoting here, it's not as showy or as beautiful as a butterfly, but just as important, unquote. Now, another entomologist, Deborah McCullough of Michigan State University, she favors dragonflies. And I'm quoting here, their biology is cool with a rectal gill and the big scoop they use to grab prey. They are voracious predators of mosquitoes and other small insects. They are diverse, colorful, common. Part of their life cycle is aquatic, and big fish like to feed on them, unquote. McCullough has been studying the invasive emerald ash borer for years, and she doesn't think that insect, the most destructive and costly forest bug to ever invade North America, is much of a candidate. She says, and I have to agree with her, I'm not sure we want to make emerald ash borer the state insect, unquote. The monarch bill is now before the Senate Government Operations Committee, which, by the way, is chaired by none other than Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky. Let's see what happens to that. Um, The special education paraprofessional Uh, in the second graders class, said the students have been studying the butterfly, that's the monarch, for a while before they met Senator Bayer. And this uh, special education paraprofessional, Karen Mebrod, says, quote, the whole idea is not only to help preserve the butterfly, but also introduce the kids to the legislative process, unquote. At least 127 students are involved in the project. They will continue to write letters urging lawmakers to give the bill a hearing. Uh, Another Michigan State University entomologist, uh, David Mota Sanchez, uh, says he believes Michigan's environment is well-suited to the monarch butterfly He's been studying monarch migration to Mexico for years, and he says, quote, we have a very diverse landscape, woodlands, trees, field crops, diverse flowers. This kind of place is a refuge for the butterfly, whether adults or the larvae, unquote. So making monarchs the state insect perhaps will prompt people to grow the milkweed which hosts and feeds their young said this particular entomologist the number of monarchs overwintering in mexico has dropped more than 80 percent over the past 20 years and he says quote it's vital to bring light to this issue so i think indri molodar did a real service by writing this particular article. And uh, I will just say that Capitol reporters, uh, I know that I've talked to, uh, talking about the monarch butterfly, have mentioned that they have milkweed in their yards and they're making sure that they grow some more because that is very important to the survival of monarch butterflies. And you can see from the states that have the monarch 
uh, as their state insect that it's very widespread uh, in terms of the states that have adopted it. I mean, geographically, they're very widespread throughout the country. You've got uh, real diversity. You've got uh, Vermont. You've got Texas. Uh, there are plenty of states that, like the monarch butterfly, it is arguably the most beautiful uh, butterfly we have or know about. And going forward, uh, we'll have to watch whether the legislature really takes this seriously. I'll just mention that the earliest state symbols we had were adopted in the 19th century. It's taken a long time to build up to 12. Let's see how long it takes to get the 13th. I'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have on the line Ryan Duffy, who is the spokesperson for the Enbridge Corporation. Welcome to The Political Insider, Ryan Duffy. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, okay. We want to talk about Line 5 through the Straits of Mackinac, which has been very controversial, as I think everybody knows, for the last several years. And you are in a better position to tell us what's going on. Uh, Give us the latest, uh, what's uh, developed, and what do you think is going to happen going forward? Sure. So we really are laser-focused right now as a company on the Great Lakes Tunnel Project. And just this week, in fact, we reached a major milestone in that project. I can uh, tell you a little bit about that. But just overall, we're fully committed to moving forward with the tunnel project, and it would invest $500 million into the state. Uh, That's something that Enbridge would completely pay for, and it makes sure that energy continues to be delivered, and it reduces the chance of any kind of issue in the Straits to near zero because that tunnel would be 100 feet below the lake bed in foot-thick concrete walls, And so we really see it as the best long-term solution and really a common-sense solution. And so we felt the best way to go forward with the work and keep the project on schedule is to focus on the work we can do, even though uh, some of these other things are going on in state government and things. And so that's what we've done. We focused on the work. And this week we've been excited to be able to announce that we did uh, finish a key pre-construction phase of the project. We were able to finish our rock and soil sampling at the Straits on schedule, and that's really a key engineering piece that you need before you can go and design the tunnel. And it's also a big part of the $40 million we've invested in this project just in 2019. And so we really think completing that rock and soil sampling phase that shows how committed we are to the Great Lakes Tunnel Project And from here, geologists are going to study those rock samples. And then the results of that will guide the design of the tunnel. It will guide the design of the tunnel boring machine, it's called. That's the machine that goes through the lake bed and and bores the tunnel. And it has to be built, custom built, to suit the characteristics of the geology in the straits. So we'll know that from those rock samples. 
So we have all of that going on with the project. You know, at the same time, we announced several new safety measures for the straits we're moving forward with. So we feel those are very important to really uh, reassure people that it is going to be a safe process and safe as we're uh, building the tunnel. Uh, we're installing a new monitoring system up in the Straits that sends uh, an electronic alert out to the ships as they go through, you know, warning them this is a no-anchor area, uh, don't drop anchor, there's a pipeline here, that kind of thing. We're also going to be installing some high-resolution cameras at the Straits to watch ship traffic at all times. And then we, we have two support vessels on the water uh, right now. They're out there on patrol. They're, they patrol 24-7 just to keep an eye on things, uh, check out the ships, so check that their anchors are up and in the right position, and if they would have any kind of issue or a ship would lose power or anything, our, our patrol vessels would be there to help out. And so and those patrols are now going uh, around the clock, uh, even at night, and we've seen some great pictures of uh, ships uh, at night there, kind of night vision shots and uh, just uh, checking on things and making sure everything's going smoothly in the straits. So that's what we're doing. Uh, a lot of work happening, and, you know, and a lot going on with the tunnel project as a whole. Assuming you're able to continue unimpeded uh, by litigation or some action of state government, how long do you think it's going to take to complete the project? What year are we looking at? We have said we could finish the project by 2024, and we are planning to start actual construction in 2021. And that's why we feel it's so important to, to focus on this work and, and stay on schedule and do the work we can do. And that's why our team is up there. It's about 30 people at the Straits, and they're just completely solely focused on the project and keeping it moving forward. And so that's that's our intention. Uh, 2024, it would be finished. Ryan Duffy, as you know, uh, you've met with some opposition from the current governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and the Attorney General, Dana Nessel. Uh, but you've won in court so far in the suits and the legal action taken um, against Enbridge or against uh, building the tunnel. Uh, where is that litigation right now? Is that being appealed by the attorney general? Are you just disregarding it and it's, you know, full speed ahead? You're not paying attention to that. You're just focusing on the project uh, unless or until somebody says you can't do it, uh, which you don't expect will happen. Right. We did receive a favorable ruling in the court of claims, and uh, it's our understanding that is being appealed now. But you're right. Our focus is on the project and keeping it moving forward. And, you know, we know that we do have a lot of support for the project uh, across the state. And so that's part of the reason why we're so focused on keeping it moving forward. We've seen now uh, 14 counties in the state have passed resolutions supporting the Great Lakes Tunnel Project, and that's the majority of counties in the UP, but also, you know, Grand Traverse County passed one, the Traverse City area. And we very much appreciate the support we're seeing from local governments for that. And it really also lines up with support we're seeing from across the state. We've seen some recent polls uh, from the Michigan Chamber, from labor groups. They're all showing uh, more than uh, half the people in the state do support the project. And I have friends who drive around in the UP. They're seeing all our uh, yard signs that say tunnel yes and 
and uh, seeing those along the highways up there. So I think word's getting out about the project. We're talking to people more and more about it as a company, giving them details, and I think more people are seeing that it really is a common-sense solution. It's one of the largest infrastructure projects in northern Michigan in decades. Uh, it, it would provide construction jobs, and then there's the benefits to local restaurants, convenience stores. Uh, all of that would be part of the project. And, again, Enbridge is paying for the entire thing, $500 million. So I think word's getting out on the project. It's leading to more support, and that's really helping to uh, push us forward and uh, keeping us on track. And we know it's, it's, a, it's a good project and it's the right thing to do. Yeah, environmentalists, of course, are very afraid and have been for a long time that somehow there's going to be some kind of a leak or spill in the pipeline as it exists now under the Straits of Mackinac before it's placed in this tunnel, which would make it safer. But even the tunnel they don't like and they don't want, and they claim that it's going to take too long to build it. We're 2019, you mentioned 2024, that's five years away. They're claiming that they're deathly afraid something terrible could happen in the next five years. But even if you got the tunnel completed tomorrow, I don't think they'd like it. Would they? They'd still complain. And I guess my question is, uh, you know, I'm asking somebody from whom I can expect a predictable answer, but that doesn't mean it isn't right. What's the alternative? I mean, what are you going to do? Shut down line five. Then what would happen? What would happen to this oil right. coming from the north? Where would it go? How could it be transported uh, to places that are its destination now? Right. And the state has studied that. And, uh, you know, a lot of work has gone into this. Uh, tunnel project plan, and that's, I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, this has been years of research between uh, the state and Enbridge working together. You know, the state recommended this as the best solution in the previous administration, asked Enbridge to do it, so that's what we've been moving forward with. But there has been a lot of study, and there's been study of alternatives, and uh, an independent study commissioned by the state found there is really no viable alternative at this point. Uh, to Line 5 and uh, moving what the products that Line 5 moves, you know, it would take 2,100 tanker trucks a day to move the product that Line 5 does. And so that's 90 trucks leaving the terminal every hour. And you can just imagine coming down and crossing the bridge and things. It's just not something we could have. And it would take 800 rail cars. So those are not good solutions. Uh, we feel like the tunnel project is the best solution. Uh, it's just common sense, as I said. And overall, uh, shutting down Line 5 even temporarily would have a huge impact on crude oil supply for refineries, and that would turn into costs going up for consumers. Sixty-five percent of the propane used in the UP comes off of Line 5, and especially right now, this time of year, you can just see how important that is. That's what people use to heat their homes, and you have to look at how would they do it otherwise. Also, more than half the propane used in the rest of the state comes off of Line 5. So when you look at all of that, you see just how crucial Line 5 is to the state. Absolutely. Look, we could talk about this a lot longer, but you've done a great job of summarizing the situation and where we stand right now and what's going to happen coming up. Uh, Ryan Duffy of Enbridge, thank you so much for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thank you. Anytime. 
That's all for this week, folks. Tune in next week.